0: All right, if you would, please, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at and studying verses 32 through 45. And um, as I corrected earlier, today's sermon is titled Resurrected Service. We will see this morning that Christ came to serve. He lived and died and rose to serve us. And now we respond to his grace by becoming servants of Christ and his kingdom. Now, let me ask you, how are you when it comes to serving? Mark 10, verse 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that's what Jesus called himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, This is the word of God. The grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will. If we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. Jesus, we thank you that these disciples in their foolishness uh, expose areas in our own lives where we are foolish and we need your help and your instruction. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the grace to receive these words of Jesus to us today as you intend them to be received, we pray. Amen. Well, you've been there before, right? Your entire extended family is gathered for a dinner and you finish off this marvelous four-course meal. And you're leaning back in your chair and your belly is all fat and happy. And then you eye that giant pile of pots and pans and plates. What runs through your mind? I hope someone else gets it. I think it's Aunt Edna's turn. And then you get that phone call that you just have to answer and deal with. Whew. Got out of that one. Or we husbands watch the recyclables pile up for days, and then finally, after feeling embarrassment, we do what we should have done days ago, and when we return from the recycling center, we proudly say, look what I did, honey. I took care of those recyclables. And then our wives shout, way to go. You are my hero. Most of us want to avoid as much work as we can, yet reap as much honor and acclaim as possible. The disciples in this passage are no different from us. It's only the fact, though, that the stage that they are upon is much larger than ours. Now, one of the reasons why you can know that the Bible is true is that the disciples who wrote it they don't gloss over their failures. And in this passage, these disciples, they're big failures. The disciples fight over who gets to serve the least while being honored the most. <laughs> Now, thankfully, the story is in the Bible, because if these seemingly hopeless, self-interested disciples can be loved and taught and changed by Jesus into self-sacrificing servants, well, then there's hope for us as well. So here's what Jesus opens their eyes to and our eyes to. Greatness isn't how many serve you, but how in selfless love you serve others. That's what we're going to look at this morning under three headings, problems, pattern, and power. Jesus points us to the problem of service that we all seem to share, and he shows us the pattern of service found in his kingdom, and he provides for us the power to serve like him. All right, first, the problems with serving. There's many of them. We'll just look at a couple. The disciples model for us the problems that we have with serving. Problem number one is this. We tend to aspire to greatness as the world defines greatness. And the world defines greatness as, as an elevated status whereby people honor and serve and obey you. Is this not how most people view things? One day I'm going to be manager of my department. Then I'll get the corner office, and I'll be the one who leads the meetings. And they won't go as long as they do now. At Grace Camp a couple weeks ago, I witnessed a boy goofing off and, uh, while a taller junior counselor was trying to get him to, to stop what he was doing and follow her outside to serve. And, and I stepped in and I said, would you please listen to her? And then and then he cried out in his little prepubescent voice, he says, I'm a counselor. Don't you know I'm a counselor too? <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, I, I didn't really know you were a counselor. And, and how about like acting like one? <laughs> See, at a young age we follow the pattern of earthly greatness. That little junior counselor thought what most people think that being in leadership in a leadership position entitled him to do as he pleases and to tell others what to do. But those who have served at Grace Camp, they know that leader that that, that leadership means that, that you die to your own comfort so that you can serve the campers. And the best counselors that I saw this past Grace Camp were the ones who appeared to lose themselves in order to connect with the group they led. Now, we see this problem with defining greatness in the disciples' story. They're journeying to Jerusalem. Um, Jesus is at the end of the line. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. And they're on their way. And and Jesus knows what's going to happen. And he tries to convey to the disciples, um, but but they won't or they can't see it. In verses 32 through 34, Jesus tells them for the third time already that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to die, and he will rise. Jesus knew what was awaiting him there. He went willingly. And then when we we read that, we saw with great clarity he explains what was going to happen, and yet they appear to be clueless. We see this in how two of Jesus' disciples make a request of him in verses 35 through 37. James and John asked to sit at Jesus' right and left. It didn't really matter to them, just as long as they were on the right or left, when he came in glory. In other words, one wanted to be vice president, the other wanted to be secretary of state. But Jesus said he was going to suffer and die and rise. I mean, don't they get it? One commentator says, listen, either Jesus' words about his suffering whistle right by them, or they must hope that his travail will only be a temporary setback, quickly reversed. Which points us to the second problem that Jesus addresses. Our failure to grasp the enormity of Jesus' mission, and therefore our mission. The disciples think for some reason that at some point, following after Jesus will make their lives easier and more pleasant. See, the disciples had been paying their dues. And ministry with Jesus was exhausting, right? And so the disciples were looking forward to a day when their load gets lighter. And Jesus tries to tell them and us, Once, listen, once the cross becomes prominent in your life, you will serve more, not less. We see this in verse 38 through 40. Jesus is gracious towards the disciples. He takes time to explain. In verse 38, he basically says, you've you got no idea what you're asking for. Um, and he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And the word cup here in the Old Testament can refer to symbolize joy or prosperity. But most often, what does it represent? It represents God's judgment, his good and, and righteous wrath. Um, And then the word baptism has more of an Old Testament meaning than a New Testament one. Here it speaks of Jesus being under a deluge of judgment. In Jesus' case, it expresses his solidarity with sinners and his willingness to, to bear their judgment before God. So Jesus asks, are you able to drink my cup or be baptized like me? Now, what is the correct answer? The correct answer is No, Jesus, of course not. That was really stupid of us to ask such a thing. But the disciples um, enthusiastically shout, what? We are able. To which Jesus says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'll be baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared He says, yeah, you're going to go through something similar to the struggles and the hardship I have, not to the same degree. You will be baptized. You'll experience this reality. Um, But he says, the disciples asked to sit at the right and left when Jesus comes into his glory. And Jesus says, no. Let me ask you, when on earth did Jesus' glory shine the brightest? Was it not as he hung in our place on the cross bearing God's judgment to, that when the, when the deluge came upon him, when the cup was poured out? And think about it. Who was on his right and who was on his left in this moment of glory? Yeah. Two criminals. The disciples yet to grasp the magnitude of Jesus' messiahship and his kingdom. But guess what? In a few weeks' time, they would. But for now, they suffered from the problem we too can suffer from, a failure to grasp the enormity of Jesus' mission, and therefore our mission and our call to service. But once Jesus went to the cross and later rose from the grave, everything seemed to change for the disciples. They will eventually understand that being a follower of Christ does not lead to an easier life, but in many ways to a harder life as one lives 24-7 for Christ in his kingdom. Now, we need to grasp this too, don't we? We must not be a people who live with a low comprehension of Christ's kingdom and our participation in it. Listen, if you are a Christian, then Christ is your Lord whom you delight to serve. And He has great work for you to do. And your life is to be centered upon Christ in His kingdom. And your servant will in it. I think one area where we can all improve is how we view our time. You know, a mature Christian knows that every hour of the day is to be lived as a steward for Christ. He or she regularly decides to sacrifice leisure or family time or rest time to serve the body of Christ. And so he or she opens up, Uh, their home, prepares a Sunday school lesson, calls someone that they know is hurting, shows up to prepare communion, visits someone in a hospital, sends encouraging emails, prepares for a Bible study or small group, volunteers in the youth group. And all of this service is done with an eye, not on the clock, but an eye on Christ. An immature Christian, though, lives like he gives with leftovers. Leftovers. If there's a little wiggle room in my busy life, then maybe I can be there, but I can't commit. Or maybe when the kids are grown, I could serve. You know what, parents? Your, your kids learn more from what you do than what you say. And let me ask you what does your level of service to the body of Christ say to your kids? What priorities does it declare? You know, the culture we live in idolizes the family. It didn't used to be this way, but now parents hover over every second of their kid's day. There is this pressure to make every little detail of the child's life beautiful and precious and perfect. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we're to sacrifice our family on the altar of service. But I do want to ask you to consider how you may be bowing, to the idol of the perfect family or to the idol of leisure or to any other idol that would cause you to make excuses not to commit to serve in the body. You know what I enjoy seeing on Sunday mornings? Kids showing up early to serve with their parents. Dad is setting up communion. and The kids are trying to help. Mama's getting ready to greet or teach Sunday school. I just saw this this morning. Lisa Sorrell's in there teaching and boys in there just hanging out with her. Let me ask you, what kind of message does that present to our kids? It says, mom and dad love you, but we love Christ and his church above all else. We don't just sacrifice for you, but we sacrifice for Christ and his body too. And so this morning, I'm asking you, if you belong to Christ, do you know that you are a vital member of his body? If you're a Christian here this morning and you're a member of another church, do you serve in the body or does the body simply serve you? And I'm not talking about writing a check. That's giving. We're talking about serving. It's good to give, but it's best to give and to serve. That's what Christ calls us to do. Now, if you are a part of what God is doing here at Grace Church, are you actively serving in some area or ministry within the body? Are you on one of our grace teams or other teams do you have a Do you have a ministry that you can point to and say, "This is what I'm a part of, this is what I'm committed to. this is where I serve." If you don't have a role like that, come see me, one of your elders, one of the leaders on one of these teams, and just share with us kind of like how God's wired you. We'll try to find a way in which you can use your God-given gifts and aptitudes to serve in the body. If you already do serve, and most of you here do, service in the body of Christ, right? It's hard. It's tiring. It's frustrating. It always stretches us. Why is that? Because that's God's way. And so you may at times be tempted to throw in the towel, to sit things out. And yes, there is a time for rest. I get it. But also know this. Jesus supplies all that we need to serve in His body if we humbly abide in Him. Too often we use our tiredness and frustration in serving as an excuse to quit when Jesus would rather us turn to him for strength and power and perseverance. In fact, I think some of us miss out on being close to Christ and experience his power in his life because we have excuses not to serve. Can you see that? Well, there's a fairly lengthy look at a few of the problems of service that we face. Certainly there's others. Maybe you've got some in mind. Now let's turn to the pattern of service that Jesus models. In verse 41, we read that the other disciples were listening in. Isn't that what we do normally? We listen in. What's going on over there? And they get really ticked off, don't they? (laughs) When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Were they indignant? Just like because they knew James and John shouldn't be been acting this way. And I think they're indignant because they were just mad that James and John beat them to the punch. They got to ask the question first. And so Jesus graciously pulls them all aside and says, time out, there is something that you need to get straight if you're going to be a faithful member in my kingdom. First, he shows the pattern of worldly greatness. We see it everywhere in the world. Verse 42, he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus is saying, you know how the world longs for greatness. The world sees leadership as an opportunity to lord it over people, to exercise authority over people. And people people long for this. They long for positions of power so that they can call the shot, so they can write the rules, so that others will serve them and they won't have to serve others. And I'm saddened to say we can see this pattern in the church. Men and women rise to levels of leadership and lord it over others in the church. In 2006, Leslie and I... Um, Before we moved here, we needed to raise $400,000 to start Grace Church, and there was this large church in Florida that held these annual church planter gatherings where they would invite people down, and some of them, they would give really nice-size support checks, and we made the final cut, and I flew down there with about 20 other church planters to make my pitch for supporting a church plant in the Hamptons, and from the... Almost the moment I got there and sat in the room with the pastor there, I had a sense that I was in trouble. For whatever reason, I do not know, he kind of singled me out to make fun of and ridicule and mock. Oh, Mark, he's not like you guys. You guys gathered all the people in your community. He's got a church core group already. He didn't do anything to gather them. I remember thinking, why would he even say that? And then later, oh, the Hamptons? I should be asking you for money. No, you don't get it. Then on the last night, I had to meet with him and five or six of his elders so they could privately interview me and ask some questions. And I walked in and took my seat, and they were all smirking, like, like a joke had just been told about me um, right before I entered in. And then in a condescending tone, the pastor asked, so tell me. Um, In reading your proposal before us, if we were to send money to you, uh, to whom would we send it? And then there was a smirk and a laugh and a group chuckle. See, it seems that I'd forgotten to put our last names in there. It said Mark and Leslie. And we had been using this to hand out to people we knew. My mistake, my bad. But he made it into a ha moment at my expense, and it went downhill from there. Throughout the meeting, the pastor gloated, and the elders grinned. It was horrible. I could tell right then as I was leaving that I certainly wasn't getting the $30,000 check. I returned to my hotel room, and I wept. I wept. Why? Was it because they were hard on me? No, I can take it. I've been through Army boot camp. It was because they said no to the money? No. I've come to realize that wherever God's at work, He provides the money. No, I wept because what it meant, this, this church of over 3,000 people has yes men for elders. And they have a pastor who arrogantly lords over others and exercises his authority like the Gentiles. Jesus, after showing the disciples the worldly pattern for greatness and service, he transitions with these very important words in verse 43. And they're words for us too. Listen, he says, but it shall not be so among you. Jesus is forbidding such attitudes and actions. How does that challenge you? But then he presents a pattern for greatness and service that we are to embrace in verses 43 through 45. What is it that Jesus teaches his disciples? He teaches them that greatness in his kingdom isn't a progression higher and higher, but what? Lower and lower into deeper and deeper levels of service. First, he says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your what? Servant. A servant and always looking and listening and available to to see what needs are there and they try to meet them. Jesus is saying this. He doesn't say if you want to be great. No, he's saying, no, look around you. See the ones you that live as servants in the body, those are the great ones in your midst. What does Jesus say in his second line of instruction? Notice how he takes us progressively deeper. Verse 44, And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. On the hierarchical scale, first is above great. Many can be great, but only one can be first. And on the hierarchical scale, a slave is what compared to a servant? A slave is below a servant, far below. A slave is the least of all and the last of all in any society. A slave knows that his entire existence is not his own, that every move he makes is for his master's benefit. Jesus is saying, look around you. See that one who lives as if he or she is a slave to the others in the body, that person is to be viewed as first among you. Now, I don't do this well. I'm trying to find my place in that. I don't... That ain't good. I don't know about you. Often as I serve, I look at things as being inconveniences, not opportunities to serve Jesus Christ. I tend to compartmentalize my actions into two two categories. Important and distractions. (laughs) How about you? Fortunately for us, Jesus' teaching is a three-part progression. He takes greatness in the kingdom to a level that you and I cannot go to. Look at the last verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. The phrase Son of Man, that's what Jesus uses to refer to Himself. Jesus, the most glorious, the most honored person who ever lived, says He came not to be served. Talk about turning our understanding upside down on what greatness is. Jesus came to serve and give His life for you. Now on your bulletin on the very back, you'll see a diagram that's printed there. Jesus' words form what is called a climatic parallelism. You don't have to memorize that. Just look at the picture. This diagram puts Jesus' words in picture form. See what he's saying? Those who are great will stoop to serve. And the one in your midst who is first among you will be as a slave in your midst. But then there is this supreme greatness, this most glorious one that you and I could never be, but the most glorious person ever in the history of the universe, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, came to serve and give His life as a ransom. Do you see the progression? Do you see the pattern that that Jesus has established for us? Greatness isn't how many people serve you or how much authority you're able to lord over others. Greatness in Christ's kingdom doesn't move upwards, but downwards. Now, who did Jesus come to serve? You, if you'd let him. And how does Jesus serve you? He says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Sometimes I like grammar. Most of the times I don't. But in this case, I do. Jesus said he came, which implies that he existed before he came. You you and I cannot say we came, right? We were maybe born into this world. But that's not the same thing. But then again, Jesus isn't your ordinary human. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's why He refers to Himself as the Son of Man. He is divine and glorious and eternal. And He says He came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You know, every other founder of every other world religion came to live as an example and leave us some writings Jesus came that he may die in our place. He gave his life on the cross. He, he says that in doing so, this provides a ransom for many. The Greek word for ransom is lutron. Here it means to purchase the freedom for someone who is enslaved or a prisoner. Now the English word for, as in ransom for many, is the Greek word anti It means instead of, or in place of, or as a substitute. Jesus is saying he came into this world to pay a debt as a substitute. He died in place of you and me. Jesus came to give his life, to serve us by giving his life as a ransom. But the slavery he is dealing with is a spiritual kind. He's saying, I will pay the ransom that you couldn't possibly pay, and I will procure your freedom in place of you. And as the disciples will see very soon, the payment is Jesus' death upon the cross in place of them. His good and perfect, glorious life to ransom us into God's family. Now, some will say, if God is so loving, why doesn't he just wave a wand and just forgive everybody if he wants to forgive? Why did Jesus have to suffer in a sacrificial way? Why did he have to be our ransom? I'm glad you asked. Tim Keller gives a better answer than I could ever formulate in one of his books. So let me, let me read that. It's a little long, but listen. He says, he writes, Jesus didn't have to die despite God's love. He had to die because of God's love. And it had to be this way because, listen, all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Think about it. If you love a person whose life is all put together and has no major needs, it costs you nothing. It's delightful. There are probably four or five people like that where you live. You ought to find them and become their friend. (laughs) But if you ever try to love somebody who has needs, someone who is in trouble or or who is persecuted or emotionally wounded, it's going to cost you. You can't love them without taking a hit yourself. A transfer of some kind is required so that somehow their troubles, their problems, transfer to you. There are a lot of wounded people out there. They are emotionally sinking. They're hurting, and they desperately need to be loved. And when they are with you, you want to look at your watch and make a graceful exit because listening to them with all their problems can be grueling. It can be exhausting to be a friend of an emotionally damaged person. The only way they're going to start filling up emotionally is if somebody loves them, and the only way to love them is to let yourself be emotionally damaged. Drained. Some of your fullness is going to have to go into them, and you have to empty out to some degree. If you hold on to your emotional comfort and simply avoid those people, they will sink. The only way to love them is through substitutionary sacrifice. And so, therefore, it makes sense that a God who is more loving than you and I, a God who comes into this world to deal with the ultimate evil, the ultimate sin, would have to make a substitutionary sacrifice. Even we flawed human beings know that you can't just overlook evil. It can't be dealt with, removed, or healed by just saying, forget it. It must be paid for, and dealing with it is costly. My friends, that is what Jesus came into the world to do, to serve you by giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, who are the many? The many are those who are honest enough to admit they have a problem, that they need somebody to do this. They can't fix it. They have a problem that only the Son of God can do as he ransoms us, as we pour out our brokenness and our shame and our sin on him. And he fills us with his grace and his goodness and his righteousness. The many are those who look to Christ in faith. Have you done that? If you haven't, you can do that today. On the back of your bulletin, there's some prayers. One of them is a prayer where you become a Christian, where you give your life to Christ. You can do that. It's always there. It's there every week. (laughs) I say don't delay. Our pattern for serving is the very pattern that Jesus gives us The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, quickly, real quickly, the power. My friends, Jesus' giving of himself as a ransom for you isn't just your pattern for service. Listen, it is your power for service. Those of you who are mature in Christ, you already know this. See, as you mature as a Christian, you will come to serve at deeper and harder levels And you will regularly find yourself tired and weak and frustrated. Just try to get people to respond to your emails, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. My friends, what Christ calls you to is a harder and harder life, not an easier and easier life. But he provides what you and I need in order to serve. When we find ourselves spent... When we get that call and we don't feel like we even have the energy to even deal with it, Christ says, come and abide in me. Find your purpose and your power in me. Let my grace come to you. Let me supply your every need so that you can, in this moment, you and nobody else, you in this moment can bring my love and my care to those in need, not somebody else. Jesus gives you the power to do that. Jesus is saying, you will be drained, but remember, I was drained for your sake. So you now can be drained for my sake. And when you drain yourself, I will fill you with more grace. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, the Apostle Paul speaks of how God's grace empowers us to serve. Write that down. 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I. Listen, but the grace of God that was with me. That's our power. Jesus doesn't just give us a pattern for service. He gives us his power, his grace for service. Now, do you believe this? Well, we've seen this morning that Jesus addresses this condition within mankind that seeks out positions of honor and power and entitlement. This world that we live in, we know it, it it promotes self-focused living, which seeks to be served, to which Jesus says, not so with you for members of his kingdom. Our focus is, is not upon the height of position, but on the depth of service. Jesus has told us this morning that we won't become great until we stop seeking greatness. My friends, Christ calls us to a difficult but glorious life, a life of not, a life not of seeking greater and greater positions for ourselves, but a life of deeper and deeper levels of service to others for Christ's sake. And in doing so, here's what's coming. In doing so, we experience more of His grace. Let's pray. Father, your ways are upside down compared to this world. We're so foolish to think we can somehow make a great name for us in the 70 or 80 years you give us. and We can build up our resume and our stature and our status. All the while, not even noticing that your way is upside down compared to that. That greatness is in losing one's life and love to serve others. We pray that we would be a people who come alive more and more to this truth. Maybe no longer be immature Christians. Maybe grow in this grace. May we seek to serve, not knowing how it's all going to work out, but trusting that you will empower us to do it. Maybe be faithful members of your kingdom and your body, we pray. Amen.